Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and I'm delighted to lead this discussion about a wonderful new book, On Faith, Lessons from an American Believer, which is a collection of Justice Antonin Scalia's speeches about faith and the role of religion in public life. The book, which is interspersed with short essays by family members, friends, and former law clerks, provides a glimpse into what truly motivated Justice Scalia, devotion to his Catholic faith. His speeches are funny, engaging, and peppered with references to great thinkers from throughout the ages. And they show how it's possible to be both a fool for Christ, but also a titan of the law. To discuss the book today, I'm pleased to have with us the two co-editors. First is Chris Scalia. He's the eighth of Antonin and Maureen Scalia's nine children. His book reviews and political commentary have appeared in USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, you're really missing out. He's very entertaining. A former English professor, Chris currently works at a public relations firm in Virginia. He edited Scalia Speaks, Reflections on Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived, in addition to the book we're discussing today. And next is Ed Whalen. He's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a frequent contributor to National Review Online's Bench Memos, where he has been a leading commentator on judicial nominations and issues of constitutional law for many years. Ed served as a law clerk to Justice Scalia in the October term, 1991. He also worked in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice and as general counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And along with Ed, uh, along with Chris, uh, Ed was an editor for both Scalia Speaks and On Faith. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, to the editors. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Elizabeth, and thank you, everybody, for attending today. It's, uh, really, really appreciate you taking your time out to uh, out of your day to hear hear us talk a little bit about this book. Uh, as Elizabeth said, this collection on faith lessons from an uh, an American believer uh, puts together some of what my father had to write about his own personal religious belief. Uh, how that religious belief informed uh, his work on the bench and how it didn't inform that work, uh, as well as more generally what he wrote and said about uh, the role of America, of religious belief in American public life, and especially his concern um, that the Supreme Court was unfortunately kind of narrowing what that role uh, could be in making it harder for religious believers to um, uh, apply that or, or express that belief in the public square. Uh, this A version of this collection was kind of something my father was working on before he passed away. Um, we include here not only speeches and uh, excerpts of opinions by my father, but we also include some recollections and reflections by people who knew him. Uh, there's a foreword by Justice Thomas, uh, there's an introduction by my brother, Father Paul Scalia, and there's uh, another short essay by my, my older sister, Mary, who uh, um, gives you some insights into what it was like growing up with him, uh, and as well as reflections from uh, colleagues and clerks and things like that. And one of these recollections is by a lawyer named Greg Grimsel, uh, who shares a story about how my father in 2015 uh, gave him kind of a, a collection of essays that my father was thinking about putting into a collection. Uh, um, and they were all about, they were all really just about this, about faith and religious belief. And uh, Greg took some time to read over them and took very careful notes and sent those notes back to my father. 
and he sent them the day before my father passed away in February 2016. So this is, we're talking about something that was close to my father's heart, um, really very shortly before he died. This is different from what my father was putting together. It includes a lot of that same material, but it includes more. As I said, it includes those personal, personal reflections by people who knew him well. It includes also a couple of prayers that my father liked. Um, it includes the homily my brother delivered at my, at my father's funeral, which is a pretty good, uh, homily. And I think people were, I can't remember the last time so many people were talking about a, a Catholic sermon. Um, Positively, I should add, and uh, and it includes a a letter my father wrote to a a pastor um, when the pastor delivered a really good funeral homily himself. Uh, so it gives you, I think, a, a full picture of what my father believed. Um, we the subtitle of this collection is a kind of a play on words. There's a double meaning: lessons from an American believer, meaning um, a religious believer in America, but also somebody who believed in the American idea. And this collection really, I think, does a good job of showing both si- both of those sides of my father and how important they were to him. Um, I'll let Ed talk a little bit more about uh, some of the content of the book. Um, I'd like to take a few minutes, though, to, to focus on what uh, what it was what it was like growing up with dad, what his influence was on kind of what we noticed about his religious belief. And some of these things are, uh, uh are in the collection as well. Um, especially in my sister's collect, uh, essay and my, my brother's introduction. But, uh, I, I think that one thing actually that a lot of people in this collection point out is that, um, my father's belief was, was intense. I mean, it was clear that he was, he was a devoted believer. Um, but it's not something that, he talked about all the time. You know, growing up, we didn't live in dread of him, like, pulling us aside and lecturing us about uh, a specific religious belief. I mean, he he did occasionally, and because he didn't so often, he didn't do it all the time, when he did, we knew it was a big deal, and we we paid attention, paid attention. So there were times when he would, we we included a a prayer in here that, that he really liked, and he talked to several of us about how much he admired the prayer and why he did so. Um, ended up being the prayer we included not only in this collection but on the back of his uh, mass card for his funeral. Um, and But we also saw how important religion was to him just by what he did. And this is a point that Justice Thomas makes in his foreword as well. He led by example. He inspired by example. For example, he was, he would always come, he was always home for dinner, which was a big deal to him. Uh, I think he, I think he told Ed and other clerks that, uh, you should get home for dinner because it, it's the time when you're, when your children don't act like savages. Um, which wasn't always true, but, um, it was a nice thing of him to say. And, but he, he started that family time with grace. And every, every meal he said the grace, well, sorry, every dinner he started grace before meals. And my, my brother, explains this in, in his forward, or sorry, his introduction. He points out that it was a rushed grace. Everybody was hungry. My dad usually got home kind of late. So, I mean, I always thought he sounded more like an auctioneer than a, you know, a, a pastor or something leading, leading grace. But it was an, an important point, an important thing for him to do because it made clear that we were gathered together as a family and with, with God there. We were giving him thanks and asking for his blessing. Uh, again, not something I necessarily appreciated at the time, but, but now that I'm raising a family of my own, I think that that's really become very important to me. I recognize the significance of my, my parents doing that. Uh, and then there was, there was mass every Sunday and on holy days. Uh, so there were, uh, you know, there were a lot of us and there were never nine of us in the house at the same time, but still, uh, it, I, I tried to wrangle three kids together. My parents were doing twice that most of the time, and they, they still got us to Mass only five minutes late. Um, and I think um, I, I respect that again now, especially that I'm, I'm raising a family of my own, um, and I, I recognize how difficult that was for them. But my father, he wouldn't just get us to Mass. He tried to get us to the best Mass he could. Um, and if that meant going somewhere other than the neighborhood parish, well, that was worth it to him. It was important for us to be brought up 
correctly, and especially in the 1970s, uh, that was harder than than it maybe should have been. So, you know, when we, uh, particularly when we lived in Chicago, that that's what I remember the most. But it was like that before too. We, you know, we would go on like 30 minute drives, 20 minute drives into the city, so we could get to a mass that my father thought showed appropriate respect for the beauty of the, the Catholic liturgy and reverence for church history, um, and maybe didn't have a heretical sermon. That would be great, too. Um, so uh, that that left an impression on us. You know, my, my father loved the, the beauty and the history of the church, and uh, he, he made clear to us that you know the, the Catholic church wasn't and he, this is something he says a lot in the speeches. It's 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 eternal. So that, but that didn't mean that you would necessarily feel like you were part of the times. You you know you had to um, come to terms with the fact that you would often feel like a fish out of water if you were if you were a believer in a secular society. Um, my brother jokes that uh, he winces whenever. F- People call my father a devout Catholic. It's, it's true, but when when people use the word devout, you know, there's kind of like a certain passivity that comes to mind. I think that didn't really suit, um, or it wasn't really appropriate to my uh, how my father approached religion and his religious belief. My father, my brother, puts it this way: Dad was a Catholic, living a dogged fidelity to the Church's teaching and sacraments. He did so imperfectly, but perseveringly. He practiced the faith, but he didn't think his own example worth imitating or his own spiritual life worth speaking about. One time after my brothers and I had been irreverent at Mass, I remember this, it was at Virginia Beach in the early 80s, um, uh, he gave us a well-deserved scolding, which is a nice way of putting it. Actually, it was a scold. It was not a personal reflection on what the Eucharist meant to him in his faith journey, but a firm and heartfelt lecture on what the Mass is. And I remember this. We this was a, a church in Virginia Beach, and it was more like a like a picnic shelter than a church. It was open, and uh, we got there. I guess five minutes late again, and so we didn't have very good uh, seats and. My two brothers and I, I think, were playing in the sand behind the church um, with some other kids, and my father was not impressed. Neither of my parents were impressed, but uh, this this was such a um, a slight on the mass that my father, at, when we got home, and he waited till we got home, uh, brought us into one of the cottage bedrooms and and told us why that was a why that was wrong. He, um, I don't remember him yelling, but I remember him laying down the law pretty clearly. And it was, I think, the first real instruction I got about what the Catholic Eucharist was. Paul, who is now a priest, remembered it. I, I'm younger than Paul. I remember it vividly. And uh, that's kind of what I'm talking about, about how because he, he chose his moments, they, they really stuck with us. Um, so I think this collection conveys – that's not all it conveys, but it, it certainly, from various perspectives, uh, makes clear – what my father's religious belief was like, um, and, and wh- how it, even though he didn't really see himself as a role model in some ways, he really did end up being that, just that for, for so many people. There was an outpouring of grief after Justice Scalia's death that I think, um, surprised many people. I think folks who never even met the justice felt a deep sense of loss on his death. And I think that was uh, for two reasons. Uh, I think it was because they, they, they knew what a great justice he was. And I think it's also because so many people admired um, how he um, was openly a man of faith. And I think this book brings together those two aspects. Um, th- those two aspects are separate, and it's important to navigate between them. And the justice um, d- does so uh, uh, in many of the items here, he made clear, uh, contrary to um, a uh, odd attack from the left, that that uh, that it was not his job as a judge to indulge his Catholic beliefs in making decisions. And you see on issue after issue uh, where that charge is leveled against him on abortion, on marriage, on capital punishment, for example, 
His position was not that the Constitution entrenched the Catholic position. His position was that the Constitution left the matter to the democratic processes for decision one way or the other to be revisited over time. Hardly the the, the view of a of a theocrat. Uh, so you'll see uh, you'll see in the items uh, here just the way he he um, discusses what it means to have a vocation as a judge, and he understood that judging was a craft, and like any other craft, it needed to be exercised um, uh, w- with fidelity to what that craft called for. He he says that uh, just as I as I as um, there's no Catholic way to make a hamburger except to make it very well. There's no Catholic way to be a judge except to to be faithful um, to to the law, to do your best to uh, apply it uh, honestly according to established principles. Uh, so I think anyone really trying to understand the justice um, will uh, learn a lot from 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 this volume. I want to highlight um, one of my uh, favorite items in the book. This is his dissent in a case called Lee versus Weissman, which uh, was from the year that I clerked. Indeed, one reason that I'm fond of this opinion, it's one that I worked on. Uh, the justice permitted his law clerks to acknowledge their role in one opinion each year, and this is the this is the opinion that uh, he and I agreed um, I could acknowledge um, my role. Uh, in this case, uh, the court majority, an opinion by Justice Kennedy, ruled that non-sectarian benedictions and invocations at a public uh, public school graduation ceremony has violated the Establishment Clause because, um, as Justice Kennedy put it, they, uh, they place public pressure as well as peer pressure on attending students to stand as a group or at least maintain respectful silence during the prayers. This was the uh, unconstitutional coercion that, 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 that Justice Kennedy found. Justice Scalia, in this opinion, runs through um, the uh, history of um, of our nation, uh, the, the tradition of public ceremonies featuring prayers of thanksgiving and petition, uh, to show how contrary to that tradition Justice Kennedy's opinion is. In one of my... Um, Favorite passages. He uh, builds on an opinion by uh, Justice. I'm sorry, by Judge Easterbrook in the Seventh Circuit. Judge Easterbrook had complained that the courts, uh, Supreme Court's rulings on uh, on Christmas displays had come to require more the skills of uh, interior decorators than, than of judges. Uh, and so Justice Scalia writes that he finds that a sufficient embarrassment. But interior decorating, he says, is a rock-hard science compared to psychology practiced by amateurs. Uh, and uh, you'll see um, also uh, in this opinion that, that he sees. I say, he states, I see no warrant for expanding the concept of coercion beyond acts backed by threat of penalty, a brand of coercion that happily is readily discernible to those of us who have made a career of reading the Disciples of Blackstone rather than a Freud. Uh, so I think you, um, in this and other opinions here, you, you, you see, um, uh, I think, some of the, 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 the edgy, um, very clear um, writing that um, I think so many of us uh, enjoyed. Uh, but I especially like the, 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 the reflections by folks whose lives and, and the faith he affected, um, which includes... Uh, a rabbi, Rabbi Meyer Soloveitchik, has a, um, a moving reflection on the justice. He refers to him as the Talmudic justice. Uh, justice Thomas, as, as Chris mentioned, um, also has some beautiful words. He says, for different reasons and from different origins, we are heading in the same direction. So we walked together and worked together for a quarter century, and along the way we developed an unbreakable bond of trust and deep affection. So I encourage you, um, I think you'll find this is a book that can, that like Scalia Speaks, can be read in small doses, uh, a little bit at a time. I think you'll really enjoy it and uh, come to know the justice um, uh, even better as a result. Thank you. So 
I want to open it up for questions from the audience, but I have a few questions for you first. Uh, so as you just referenced, this was the, the second volume uh, that, that you worked on together of Justice Scalia's spe speeches. Why did you decide to do a volume uh, just focused on his speeches on faith? Well, as I mentioned, this we we knew this this is something he wanted he wanted done, and or at least was uh, considering, and it was starting work on himself. Uh, and, and we thought it was important to see that through. Um, a lot of this material is from Scalia speaks, uh, but we thought it was important to have um, kind of a more accessible collection that was just about his speeches on faith, um, in part to emphasize how important those speeches were. Um, were to him and how much time he he spent delivering them. Uh, there were a couple of speeches in here he he delivered pretty often uh, to the point that I think if you heard him speak a lot around town you you got to know them pretty well. Um, but uh, you know they they were that important to him and we thought we thought it was it, it was uh, certainly worthwhile to see that project through. But again we we expanded it and. Coming as it did after his death, we thought it was important to kind of give a fuller perspective of him and and the influence that his life and including these speeches uh, had on and opinions had on other people. I'll add that um, the justice was a um, great admirer of George Washington, and I think uh, especially appreciated the thoughts that George Washington set forth on the role of religion in society and in his farewell address. And I think in many ways um, this volume uh, is um, a, a testament to um, that appreciation that the justice had, and you know his commitment to um, try to try to build on our our, our legacy of um, religious belief and religious freedom. Uh, let me quote briefly from from Washington in his farewell address. A passage that passages that I are, are little um, I think appreciated these days, though they're I think very powerful. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. A little further down in his farewell address, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Uh, so again, we, uh, the justice thought that the court had done uh, great damage to our country and our culture through many of its rulings trying to uh, extirpate um, religious belief from the public square. Um, I think this book um, brings together his views and part of an effort to to fight back against that. So, Ed, I know you're partial to the dissent in Lee versus Weissman, but uh, what's what's your second favorite speech or essay from, uh, from the book? Well, I think that the... Speech that the justice cared most deeply about, the speech that best conveyed his views of what really, really matters beyond the realm of law, is the very first speech um, in the book, Not to the Wise, the Christian as Cretan. This speech, uh, he's sometimes referred to as the two Thomases. For in the speech, he contrasts the worldviews of Thomas Jefferson uh, and of his great hero, St. Thomas More. Thomas Jefferson, who spent quiet evenings in the White House with a Bible in one hand and a razor in the other, as he would carve out of the Gospels those passages which Jefferson, in his wisdom, uh, deemed to be mere superstition. And the, the, the Gospels end with uh, Jesus' death on the cross. And then uh, Thomas More, who gave his life um, standing up uh, for his faith, refusing to cow to his uh, good friend uh, Henry VIII. Uh, and just what an inspiration uh, Justice Scalia saw in that. So I think uh, this speech reflects the the the... Uh, understanding that, um, that Justice Scalia had that uh, in the end uh, it's 
you know, how you live your life uh, and carry out your faith uh, and display courage when needed, um, that, that, that really matters. And uh, I think that's the, the message, again, outside the, 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 the realm of law that he would most want to uh, leave with people. I really like one um, titled Absolute Standards of Conduct, Lessons from the Holocaust. This is one he delivered at uh, the, the annual Days of Remembrance commemoration for victims of the Holocaust. He delivered it in the, the U.S. Capitol. Uh, and I think uh, it's very moving for that setting alone. And I think that uh, it was kind of a – my father recognized what a big deal the event was and um, what a, a particular responsibility – um, or sensitivity uh, a Christian had in speaking at an event like that, and he kind of he he addresses that directly at the beginning of the of, of the talk. But I think what um, one of the reasons I like this so much is the lesson he emphasizes about the Holocaust is that uh, Germany wasn't a backwater when this happened. Germany was. Uh, a very sophisticated culture at the forefront of education, uh, music, um, all the arts, essentially. It was, it was a European leader. Uh, it had such great intellectuals, great thinkers, great artists, but it was still capable of that, what he called, I think, diabolical cruelty. And he, he emphasizes that because it's it's a warning. No matter how sophisticated we think we are, um, if we lose sight of certain principles, we can become capable of great evil. Um, oh, I lost my place, but I was going to quote it. Uh, thank you. Um, he says towards the end, it is the purpose of these annual Holocaust remembrances not only to honor the memory of the 6 million Jews and 3 or 4 million other poor souls caught up in this 20th century terror, but also by keeping the memory of their tragedy painfully alive to prevent its happening again. The latter can be achieved only by acknowledging and passing on to our children the existence of absolute, uncompromisable standards of human conduct. Mankind has traditionally derived such standards from religion, and the West has derived them from and through the Jews. Those absolute and uncompromisable standards of human conduct will not endure without an effort to make them endure, and it is to that enterprise that we rededicate ourselves today. And that's kind of a variation, I think, of what, what Ed was expressing before about why he liked quoting Washington and other founders as much as he did, but... Um, Religion is an important source of morals and values, and when we forget that, um, and when the government helps us forget that by closing it off from the public square, there there can be significant consequences. So shifting gears a bit, in a speech entitled, Away from the Noise, Making Retreats, Justice Scalia mentions one of the biggest disappointments of his life, uh, being passed over for Solicitor General during the early years of the Reagan administration. And he said it was a really bad call on his part, referring to the attorney general, um, and a bitter and unexpected disappointment for me. But had I become SG, I have little doubt that I would not be on the Supreme Court today. So pray for things, but accept what you are given. He knows better than you what is for your own good. Yeah, the he there is not the attorney general. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's refreshing to hear that uh, for even even for someone at the very top of his field, there were disappointments along the way. So Chris, could you talk about how your dad handled disappointments? Yeah, I should also clarify that uh, he, um, in that line, he says it was a, a bad decision on his part. I thought. Um, and it's, I don't think he continued to think so in large part because I think he respected Rex Lee, who was chosen as Solicitor General instead, um, in, in case any of Rex Lee's children are, are, are watching this. Um, that, that really stuck with him. And that, that speech, he delivered that you know, long, long after he'd been confirmed to the court. And he, he told a similar story. He told that same story to my brother, uh, another brother, uh, after – he, after my brother lost a, a high school election his senior year, and uh, my, my brother was upset. 
that he lost. And my, my father pulled him aside and, and shared that story about how he had been similarly upset when he had been passed up for that job. He thought he was perfect for it. And, um, and, uh, the lesson, the lesson then, as it was in that speech that, you know, good things can, can come, uh, from, from disappointments and you need to just kind of trust that, that, um, he, God, has bigger plans, better plans, something else in store. And my brother is, has not yet um, been even nominated to the Supreme Court, and he's not a lawyer, so he never will be. So, But his life has turned out pretty well. Um, so I think that was uh, – my brother told me this story that my father shared that story uh, after my father's funeral um, at the cemetery. It, it clearly, you know, like that lesson at church, it it stuck with us when my, when my father did that sort of thing. Um but I, I think, you know, that I think my father's sense of perspective was a, a big help um, during his tenure as a Supreme Court justice because he wrote, as you may know, a lot of dissents, and that can be frustrating. But I think he kept um, he kept perspective and maintained the long view of things um, and was able to change the court, not despite, but really because of the dissents he wrote. He he stuck to his principles, and I think when he was nominated, when he appointed to the Supreme Court in 1986, originalism he joked was a really weird thing. People people looked at him like he was admitting to eating human flesh or something when he when he explained what originalism was. And we're at the point now where it's um, it's not universally accepted, but it's recognized as mainstream, and we have a number of other justices on the Supreme Court who are originalists. And that was because my father kept a perspective. He didn't let um, frequent dissents uh, distract him from uh, expressing and explaining uh, what he thought was proper jurisprudence. Could one of you talk a little bit about... um about the the homily from the funeral mass and and also um, the letter at the very end from Justice Scalia to uh, to Dr. James um, Goodlow. Well, I'll mention. Sure, I think many of you may remember the the, uh, the beautiful homily. Uh, again, I think it was so powerful that uh, I think in many ways it's the reason um, uh, for this book. Don't tell your brother that, though. Um, <laughs> And, of course, the whole setup that Father Paul gives is we're here because of one man, a man who did this, a man who did this. And uh, that man, he explains, was Jesus Christ, not not Anton Scalia. Uh, the the letter that uh, Elizabeth refers to is a letter that Justice Scalia wrote to uh, a minister who had given a homily at the funeral for Justice Powell. Uh, and uh, in that letter, uh, which... Father Paul discusses um, in his own uh, homily, uh, Justice Scalia thanked the minister um, for uh, for his homily, and especially um, for. Let's see if I can find it here. He says he says he's surprised um, how often uh, eulogy is the centerpiece of the of the funeral service. Um, rather than the resurrection of Christ, and he's great. He was grateful to uh, to Doctor Goodlow um, for making um, the, the resurrection the focus, and uh, I think especially not for yeah, thinking that the 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 funeral is all about praising the the, the deceased instead of an occasion to 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 pray for the the, the deceased. Chris, do you have more to add on? Yeah, I first of all, I just. I love that my father wrote that letter to to the Reverend um, James Goodlow. I, you know, they didn't know each other, and uh, at least I don't think they did. And uh, he didn't seek any publicity for it or anything like that. Um, I just thought it was a very kind gesture, and uh, um, I, I don't know, I think it's kind of inspiring. It makes me want to write more letters to people to tell them good work. Um, and as for Paul's sermon. Uh, it's difficult for me to say anything nice about it because my brother wrote it. Um, but it's, uh, it, it holds up well. But I, I would just share one, one little insight into, into that mass. Uh, at the beginning of the mass, or really in the days leading up to the mass, 
we had a lot of my brothers and sisters and I had a lot of things on our mind, but I think we were um, we were nervous for Paul because we knew the mass would be a pretty big deal. A lot of people would be in attendance and um, and watching on television, and uh, there, there would be a lot of pressure on Paul. And uh, but I think those those were my nerves for Paul and my nervousness for him, my anxiety for him was dispelled at the beginning of the Mass when we were um, gathered around the casket um, in the back of the church at the beginning, and he was getting ready to, to say a prayer and, and bless the casket, I think. And uh, we were all gathered around him, and we looked at him, and he just looked up, and he gave us a, a wry smirk, like, I got this. I can handle this. Um, and it, it calmed us down, I think. It, it, it eased our nerves a little bit. Um, and, but it also, it, it, in the process and in part kind of made us feel more confident in, in what he was going to do. And I, I hadn't seen the, the sermon beforehand. For some reason, he didn't, um, want me to read it over, or edit it in advance. And I won't take that personally, but, um, I think it was, it was just such a beautiful sermon that my father would have loved for the, for the reasons that my father explained in that, in that letter, that it was, uh, it, it had the, the trick opening where Paul made it seem like it was, we were there for my dad. No, we were actually there for Christ and, and my, my father was there for Christ. Um, I think it was, it, it was just a, a beautiful sermon that really captured what my father understood funeral masses to be too. So the the speech um, entitled "Politics and the Public Good: The False Allure of Socialism" is pretty timely today. In this, Justice Scalia examined what form of government best suits Christians, and here's what he says: The allure of socialism for the Christian is that it means well. It is or appears to be altruistic. It promises assistance from the state for the poor and public provision of all the necessities of life. Capitalism, on the other hand, promises nothing from the state except the opportunity to succeed or fail. How uninspiring. And then he goes on to say that the governmentalization of charity, uh, what was once asked as a favor is now demanded as an entitlement, that this transformation has produced both donors without love and recipients without gratitude. So what do you think the justice would say about the uh, the swift rise of socialism, its popularity in, in these last few years? Well, I think he would be appalled, uh, as we all should be, when you see what socialism is doing to you know Venezuela, what socialism did to the Eastern Bloc, the idea that uh, you know 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there are young people who think it's chic to be socialist is... Uh, I think a testament to how poor our educational system is. I think Justice Scalia would understand that and decry um, that um, our educational system, public and private, does not teach and instill American principles, um, but instead, in the name of modern civics, teaches whatever uh, uh, is is fashionable these days. Look, Justice Scalia understood uh, that uh, maintaining um, this system, maintaining our freedom, is a work of every generation. And we know that, you know, babies come out of the womb as little savages who need to be, uh, who need to be civilized. That's the task of, of, of each generation to, to civilize the next one. We have failed in so many respects. And I think, uh, again, I think he would be, um, appalled and deeply saddened by, um, the, um, fascination that many people somehow have with socialism. He also pointed out in this speech, which, by the way, was pretty controversial at the time. I, the audience didn't necessarily react very well to it, I, I am told. Um, but uh, one of the points he makes is that as as socialism, as government expands, um, Reagan said, as government expands, freedom contracts. And my, my father says that as government expands or as socialism grows anyway, Religion contracts, um, and he pointed out that you know, in in more socialist European countries, in, including in Italy, where he was delivering this speech, the the church is not what it is. Christianity is not what it is in the United States, and the United States obviously is much more capitalistic. Um, 
than than its European counterparts. And I also like a point he makes towards the end. I'll, I'll just read this directly. While I would not argue that capitalism as an economic system is inherently more Christian than socialism, it does seem to me that capitalism is more dependent upon Christianity than socialism is. For in order for capitalism to work, in order for it to produce a good and stable society, the Christian virtues are essential. Since the capitalist system, since in the capitalist system each individual has more freedom of action, each individual also has more opportunity to do evil. Without widespread practice of such Christian virtues as honesty, self-denial, and charity toward others, a capitalist system will be intolerable. So are there any other speeches you want to highlight? Or should we open it up for audience Q&A? Why don't we open it up for audience Q&A? I'll just mention, uh, I think we have books available uh, for purchase and signing afterwards. So if if some of you guys out there haven't yet figured out your Mother's Day gift, yeah. no, here, here you go. <laughs> Graduation's coming up, yeah. Father's Day. <laughs> All right, well, please wait for the microphone and identify yourself and ask a question. Don't give a speech. <laughs> Who has a question? Here we go. So thank you very much. Um, did the justice ever have, um, I guess I'll call it the uh, wedding cake dilemma while on the bench, in other words, his faith versus the – I know he had the opportunity to dissent all the time, but if he's going to follow the law and be um, a judge and do it the right way, did that ever come into conflict, and then which one prevails? Well, he addresses um, that general conflict. That is, um, you know, are there times where your faith might actually um, require you um, to do something that your uh, legal oath – Forbids, in which case the answer is, is not to indulge your religious beliefs, but rather to, to recuse yourself from the case. He discusses that in the context of the death penalty and, uh, explains why he thinks that, uh, you know, recent, uh, developments, uh, in, uh, Catholic teaching on the death penalty are, uh, do not fully capture the, um, long, what longstanding Catholic teaching is. And he explains that if he if he believed um, that uh, the, these more recent teachings were uh, authoritative, uh, he would have to actually. He says he'd have to resign. I'm not sure why. Not quite sure why recu- simply recusing from death penalty cases wouldn't be an option. But I think perhaps that's because he would see the death penalty cases as a sufficiently important part of the docket that it would not be responsible to um, to be on the court and not take part in those. So you'll see some discussions there of, of the, the, the conflict. You also see it in this um, speech um, that I referred to before where he is telling a Catholic audience um, that is honoring him as a justice, say, look, if you're honoring me for theology or because you think I'm a pro-life justice, you're honoring me for the wrong reasons. Um, uh, it is not my role to to uh, indulge my uh, my Catholic beliefs, and um, you know, so don't honor me uh, for mistakenly thinking that that's what I'm supposed to do. Other questions? Well, while we wait for uh, if there are other questions, let me mention that there is a third volume uh, of Justice Scalia's works um, in progress. I, I don't think the publisher is going to kick me for for leaking the news. <laughs> yeah. um, but a, a a volume of Justice Scalia's um, writings on law, um, aimed uh, more for the lawyer uh, and uh, um, than. Well, Scalia speaks was aimed very much for a general audience. This book should be of, of real interest to a general audience. It's also going to have um, some more sophistic, some more sophisticated uh, opinions on legal issues that I think uh, lawyers and law students especially will enjoy. When exactly that will come out, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe later this year. All right, one final call. Oh, you have another yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be the final call then, so one more. So um, can you take us behind the scenes? Uh, you know, you talked about the example of Justice Kennedy and the, and the conflict in that one case. Um, 
what was it like with someone who was so convicted on his faith, mm-hmm. sitting on a daily basis, I guess, with other people who, from an outsider's point of view, are not? Um, are they having this discussion over lunch and coffee and and the rest, um, just in general on theology and try and is he, you know, following Matthew and trying to evangelize? And bring these people to faith at the same time as we all should be doing, whether at work or not. Uh, based on uh, Justice Thomas's forward, the impression I get is that no, I mean he would he would talk about such things, but he didn't um, uh, he didn't make a point of uh, I, I guess way of, going back to what I said earlier. I think he evangelized more by his actions, and um, you, you know. Uh, one of his clerks, A.J. Belia, tells a story here about how uh, one of his first days in, uh, of his clerkship, my dad called him and said, uh, hey, what day is it? And uh, A.J. kind of says, why, why would he be asking this? And eventually he realizes, oh, it's, it's the Feast of the Assumption. Um, and that's what he said. He said, uh, it's, the, it's the Assumption. And dad said, you want to go to Mass? Um, and AJ explains here, like, he probably assumed I was Catholic because my name rhymes with his. Um, and, uh, and it turns out he was right and he was practicing. So, you know, li- little things like that. I mean, he would, uh, he, he attended mass, took time out from holy days to do that and talked about it, um, with Justice Thomas occasionally. But Justice Thomas says, you know, it wasn't, a, you know, the central point of their conversation. It was primarily by example. And you'll see from another reflection by another former law clerk, um, Kristen Lindsley, she describes how, you know, no, matters of faith did not come up in, in, in everyday work. She ended up converting uh, to Catholicism, you know, uh, decades later, I think credits his example. So that, I suppose this ties into, um, you know, broader issues of just uh, mm. how best uh, uh, to evangelize. But, you know, he saw the workplace as a place to, to get the work done. So I'd like to ask a question that's a little bit more speculative in nature. Of course, our political landscape, the ideas in our political landscape have shifted a good bit since Justice Scalia was on the bench. And you've already mentioned socialism um, and some other things. Uh, given that kind of slate of new problems, new issues, uh, which of those do you think would be most concerning to Justice Scalia um, if he were alive today? And what do you think his response maybe to some of those things might have been? That's a very open-ended question, but I'm just interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, I, I would I would just focus on the courts, obviously, and and court cases, and just point out that you know there are religious liberty cases. Before, well, one in particular before the court this this term, the uh, one involving a, a memorial cross in Maryland that I know um, kind of wish my dad were involved in that one um, because I, I'm pretty sure he would write a pretty good opinion for that. Um, certainly in keeping with some of the things he has to say in this book, but you know otherwise. Uh, I would say, um, I think he would be concerned with with some of the ideas about the Supreme Court right now about uh, um, about court packing, and you know, I never talked to him about that uh, explicitly, but you know, I, I think that you know he would be he was concerned about the politicization of the court when he was a justice, and um, and and that's something he addressed particularly in in some speeches we ha- we included in our last collection. And you know, he just believed that that and that stemmed in large part from judges taking on a role that wasn't constitutionally theirs. And I think that that would still be a concern of his, um, both the, you know, kind of in in presidential races and and with, with on the court itself. And do you have anything else? I'm glad you mentioned the the cross case. Um, I, I can only imagine what your dad would have had to say about one of the lower court judges who suggested that a way to fix the, the establishment clause problem was to uh, just uh, cut off the arms of the cross yeah. and, and let the monument stand. Another, another interior decoration problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here. Thank you. I'm interested in your thoughts as to what are the practical application messages for individuals who really espouse principles of religious liberty today and really um, align with George Washington's 
um, farewell address that religion, religious liberty, and um, those freedoms are essential to political political prosperity. So a message to students or um, law graduates or, you know, moms and dads, what what can be done to ensure that religious liberty principles today are, are defended? Well, that's a big question. And this isn't a, you know, how-to book, even though I guess it, mm-hmm. um, it was at least at the time, number one, Amazon in the, I think the Catholic self-help category, yeah. which would have, the category that would have appalled your father. <laughs> uh, um, but look, I think one lesson that I would take away from it is, um, the challenge, no matter what your vocation is, of, um, Struggling to live a life of faith. That's, you know, discerning what your faith, um, calls you to do. Having the courage, um, to, to, uh, pursue that, uh, at times it may involve, you know, great sacrifice. Um, and, you know, recognizing that in fighting broadly for religious liberty, you know, you're in the best of, of, of America's Traditions. Um, one other um, beautiful letter, um, beautiful writing by George Washington ought, that ought to be better known than it is. Justice Scalia um, loved to quote uh, is Washington's letter um, to the, I believe it's titled, the Hebrew Congregation at Newport. Uh, the the uh, members of the synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, um, wrote to Washington congratulating him on his. Um, Inauguration uh, as president and and um, expressing their wishes that that you know they they would be tolerated um, uh, uh, in this new country. And Washington writes, pardon the, the long passage, but so beautiful. It is uh, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves, conduct themselves, as good citizens and giving it on all occasions their effectual support. Washington concludes his letter with this prayer. May the children of the stock of Abraham, who dwell in this land, continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there should be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and, and way everlastingly happy. Well, with that, we've come to the end of our hour. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists today. And I would encourage everyone to purchase a copy of the book out in the lobby and the editors can sign it for you. <laughs>